quite a load of verses to read here. Um, I didn't know. The flood is basically from chapter 6 to 9. We are not covering everything in there. But I definitely think you need to look at the entire story to get the point of the flood. So, we're going to read bits and pieces, so let's follow with me. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man, uh, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or that means giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Go to verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for all the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. Verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. Verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now in verse 11. In the 600th year of chapter 7, 711. Oh, 711. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and nights. And verse seven, verse 18. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Now chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Now verse 18. So Noah went out, and his three sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God said... Or God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply it in it. Then in verse 13, verse 12 will do, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Basically, that I'm not going to flood the world again. And now, finally, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, 
and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, naked. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan! A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Yes. Lord, on that note, we pray that tonight we would not be cursed. God, bless us and let your grace fall and rain upon us and flood us and lift us up to you. I pray for the understanding of our hearts tonight. I pray that your spirit would blow across our hearts as the wind and that the floodwaters of chaos would reside and that we would be able to see and cherish and be with you ever so near tonight. So comfort those who need so, humble those who need it. Continue to restore Jeff and his church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whew, got through another long reading. Okay, so... We are now, by the way, we can uh, once again welcome Jeff and his church. They're watching us. Hi. We love Hi. you guys, and we are so excited to help you guys and be part of this. <sighs> it's always so awkward because you can't see them, but I'm talking to them. And they'll be hearing this next week. So, <laughs> hi, guys. All right. Well, um, Genesis chapter 6. Is, um, we're, in a, we're in a long, massive series, 31 parts, right? It's called History, His Story. Finding our place in God's story. Now notice what I did not say. It's not finding God's place in my story. It's finding my place in God's story. Religion lives my story and says, let's include God so that we've got the grounds covered. But Christianity says, enough with my story. God gets the pen. I'm inserting myself in his story. And so what we're doing with this 31-part series is we're looking at God's story from Genesis all the way through Revelation and grabbing the main themes and stories from it and piecemealing his story so that we can understand where we belong in this story. It's so helpful to know where you are in a story. You know what character you are. You know what role to play. You know who the villain is. And when things go bad, you know how the victory is going to come so you don't have to panic when things go bad. Right? Yes. It's like that. You guys, we all know how we hate people spoiling a story when we're reading a new book. Mm, I love that. Because we like the suspense of not knowing what's going to happen. But in, our, in life, that's a bad way to live. That suspense of, what's going to happen? That could be, you know, Jeff on his back. What, what's going to happen? I have no money. I have no job. How are, what's going to happen? That's not a good place to be living in suspense. <coughs> but knowing the end of the story is a much better way to live. I don't know reading. Okay, reading you want to be in suspense because it's fake. It's not real. But in real life... We need to know. It's, it brings peace and it brings confidence for us to go out on mission for God. So that's why we want to find our place in his story. And we're now in part four. 
So we've seen the creation in part one. God is a sovereign king. He built his kingdom. He gave the kingdom to us, his under kings, to rule it and expand it. Chapter two shows us we're to expand his creation, the garden, to the ends of the earth so that the whole place became his temple where man and every creature lived in communion with God. And then in chapter three, we saw this whole thing blow up because Adam was not faithful with the kingdom God gave him. Adam basically said this, I don't want to be in your story. I want you to be in my story. That's what the fall did. That's what sin does. Adam decided, I am now the ruler. I'm the rebellious ruler. God is not the ruler. I'm sovereign. I get to choose what's right and wrong. I'm God. I'm the king. And as a result, man can't dwell with God in that condition. So man was exiled from the garden. And that's why we live in the state that we do today. We live unsatisfied. We live yearning for something bigger and better than us because there is something bigger and better than us. And the rest of the Bible is all about the restoration of bringing man back to the garden. That's what Christianity is. You become a Christian, you're being restored to what you once were in the garden. That's what Jesus brings for us. Now what we do is we come to part four and we see what has become of this rebellion. All right, what, what does the world look like now that man is in charge and he's decided he's the king of the world? Not God. He doesn't have to answer to anybody. It's my way. What does the world look like? We see that it's, it's looking pretty bad. It's looking very awful. So I think the point here of what, what we see, what we read, I think the word corruption popped up many times. What's happening is when man becomes king, corruption is multiplying and it's filling the earth and it's, it's going rampant. So the flood story wants to point out two things for us about the rulership of man. First is that man's power is pathetic next to God's. All right, man, that's what man did. Remember when he fell in Genesis 3? I'm in charge now. He rebelled. Well, how does it look now that you're in charge, Adam? Looks pretty bad. And then God's going to step in with the flood, and it's going to wipe away man without any resistance. Who's really the powerful one? Yeah, exactly. And then it's also going to show us that um, at the end, we saw that Noah sins, right? Just like Adam sinned. So what we're going to learn is that the failure of man proves that we can't restore ourselves to be with God in Eden. We can't get back there. That's what the flood narrative shows. First, God is really in charge, no matter who thinks is in charge. Second, we can't get back to Eden on our own. And Noah is a prime example of what happens when you try to do it on your own. So, let's look at it. The corruption and destruction of the world. So, man's taken over and things are looking really good, right? No. What have we seen? Corruption, chaos. Um, I, want you, I want to compare for you guys two things here. When God was in charge, what did we see? In chapter 1, God conquered the chaos and made creation. Remember that? In the beginning it said God created the earth, and it said that there were chaotic waters, just lifeless darkness and just waters there. And there's no life. There's nothing. It was a bad thing. God stepped in and conquered that and made a creation out of that. So God made things from chaotic to structured and created. That was when God was in authority. 
And then he told man in Genesis 1, all right, you guys are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my glory. You're my image bearers. You're made in my image. Go fill the earth with me. And that's what God, that's what his rulership happened. But man took over and watch what happens. No longer is chaos turning into creation, like when God was in control. Now creation is going back to chaos. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. It says, I was talking about the sons of God, which we believe may be some sort of angelic beings, could be. They mated, had relationships with real-life women, and verse 4 is a result. There was Nephilim on the earth, or giants, these men of renown, these, these mixed breeds, if you will. Um, there's a lot of questions about what this text is saying, but all that I want you guys to pull out of this, because we've done, last year we did a whole message on this passage. You guys can go iTunes that if you want and find out if you really care. But I think the main point to pull from this is that creation is in disorder. All right, something isn't right about these sons of God mating with women and producing giants. We have creation going to chaos. Man's in charge now. That's what's happening. And then look what else happens. God told him, fill the earth with my glory in chapter 1. But in chapter 6, verse 11, what's man filling the earth with? God's glory? No. 6.11 says, the earth was crept in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So good thing man's in charge. He's doing a great job. We want the rage, God. Get away. Fine, I exile you out of my garden. You go start your own garden. Okay, we will. And creation turns into chaos. Yay, doing good. God's glory filling the earth turns into violence filling the earth. This is really good plan so far, Adam. Good job. So God obviously sees this, right? And he decides this is not good. I need to step in and show to the world that, yes, man might want to be in charge, but his power is pathetic next to my power. So... He brings what we call the flood, waters, to wash away this chaos and this corruption. He's going to destroy his creation because man has corrupted it. Literally, he's going to recreate the earth. What you see in the flood is not just as I used to always think. It's just like, okay, here's the world, just like we have now, but at one time it was just filled with water, and then the water went away, and we're all still back. Just a lot of people died in the process. That's not all that's happening in the flood. God is literally decreating. You know what I mean? You build blocks one on top of another, and then you dismantle them one after another in the same way you built it. That's decreating, right? God is taking his creation, he's dismantling it one piece at a time. For example, the flood waters rising up. You guys remember in the creation account, Genesis 1, what was there at the very beginning? We already talked about this. Water. Filling the earth. So what happens at the flood? We're going back to the very beginning. Water is going to fill the earth. And it's definitely not a good thing. Um... Look at 7 verse 4. This one's really cool. I, I never saw this until this week. It says, for in how many days? Seven. Seven days, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and nights. So basically, in seven days, <laughs> creation's going to end. <laughs> how many days did it take for creation to start? Seven days. So here you go. We're reversing the whole creation cycle. 
in 7 verse 14. It says that um, every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing, basically all the animals went, da, 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 they went into the ark with Noah in verse 15. So all the animals went to Noah. What did all the animals do with Adam? God sent in chapter 2 all the animals to Adam and he named them. Noah here is all the animals are sent to him, but he's saving them. So the same, kind of the similar thing, like the animals are coming, but for very different purposes. <laughs> and then um, in 7 verse 18, it says that the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And verse 19 talks about how the high mountains were under the waters, even the high mountains are covered. That's a reversal of creation. On day three, it says that the waters receded and land started to project, right? But what we have in the flood is the opposite. The mountains are going back under the water. So this is a decreation. God is taking his creation and saying, all right, time to start over. Do you have your hand up? Go ahead, sir. Um, <coughs> I was wondering if God like restarted, uh, how did we get re-corrupted again? Oh, you just think like me. We'll talk about it. I, I, it would be unfair to everyone if I go out of order, so we'll, we'll get there. So, then what do we have if God decreates the earth by bringing the flood? Logically, what's going to happen when the flood goes away? He's recreating the earth. So when the floodwaters subside, what you have is a new creation. Literally, what we've done is we've started over. I want to show you this in a couple ways. Look at 8 verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And what did he do? God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Now, a little bit of Hebrew will help you see this. When I tell you that spirit and wind in Hebrew is the exact same word, now you can think of Genesis 1-2 where it says the waters were over the earth and what hovered over the waters? The spirit of God hovered over the waters. Here in chapter 8, the wind, or spirit, same word, is hovering over the waters, and they began to reside. So you have a literal reconstruction of Genesis 1-2. God is recreating here. Um, look at verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 11. This is where Noah sends out the two birds, and the dove comes back. It says, And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Olive leaf? Well, what happened in day three? In day three, it said that the mountains peaked up out of the waters and vegetation appeared on them. We now have vegetation starting to appear from out of the water. Just, it's a little bit of a smaller one, but it's mirroring what happened during creation. And then lastly, after God created for seven days, what did he do? It said that he rested. He took a Sabbath. What does God do at the end of the flood? Bless you, sir. Not only does the ark rest upon the mountains, it says, but God himself rests in 8 verse 13. It talks about him, um, it says, what? No, 9 verse 13, pardon me. It's like, that's not the verse. I have set my bow in the cloud. And notice it, it says bow. All right, we normally talk about the rainbow, and I think that possibly that's true. Okay, maybe that's where the rainbow came from. It came from God's promise not to flood the world. So the rainbow is a reminder. 
but more literally in the Hebrew, it's just talking about a bow, like a, a warrior's bow and arrow. So what we have here is a picture of God making war against the earth with the flood. And now that the flood's over, he's hanging the bow on a hook to say, I'm done fighting. I'm resting from that job now. So God rested just like he did in creation. The work is over. I'm hanging the bow up. Now, I think the rainbow is definitely an appropriate thing, but I think the Hebrews is doing that play on words, that the rainbow is also looked at as an archer's bow. It was his war against man, and it's over. It is over. But before all of this destruction, this decreation, this recreation, it's not as if God just said, all right, Satan won. It's time to just redo everything, including man. No. God took pieces from the old creation into the new creation. He took animals because God cares about his creation. Okay, Romans even talks about what Jesus died, not just for us, he died for the creation to be lifted from the curse. So Noah brought animals, and he also picked Noah, a man, to come from the old creation to the new creation. So God isn't just wiping out everything. He's bringing pieces into a new setting. And he's going to teach us a lesson here. So this great salvation, it says that in chapter 8, 6, verse 8, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. <coughs> favor is another word for grace, okay? He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. The reason I point that out is because it says in verse 8, Noah found grace, he found favor. Then, verse 9 says, he was righteous and blameless. Please don't miss that order. It wasn't because Noah was righteous and blameless, God looked at him and gave him favor. It's not what it says. It says God gave him favor, therefore Noah was righteous and blameless. So this isn't God's rewarding a good person this is God sovereignly choosing a person he wants to use and giving him his grace to live in a way that is possible to be righteous and blameless. This is, Christian, what happened to you. Noah is a picture of our salvation. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, says that you have been saved by grace through your faith. Your faith activated God's grace towards you. And this is not your own doing. It was the gift of God, not a result of your works. Just like Noah found grace, and the grace empowered him to do good works. It wasn't because of his good works that he got grace. That is how we are saved too. Any of you who love Jesus in this room, God didn't just reward you with salvation because you're such a decent chap. He loved you, chose you, and said, there is a great flood, spiritual flood, coming to waste away sinners. And I'm choosing you to be saved out of that. Therefore, we walk righteous and blameless as a result of his choosing us. Grace is power. It's, his, it's, it's What I always call it is God's overabounding goodness meeting our need. What's our need? We're rebels like Adam. We said in the garden... You're not king, I am. Rebel. Rebellion. And God said, you have a need. You can't even do anything. So here's my grace. There's only one condition for grace. It's faith. Faith activates his grace. And it's not even a work. Faith is an attitude. 
that expresses itself in works. That's why Noah built the ark. God gave him grace, and Noah proved grace was happening in his life by building the ark. He said, I trust that this flood's coming. I'm going to work on this ark. That was his faith. And so that was the salvation of Noah. That's the salvation of us. And that's a little bit of the picture there. So what we see then on the other side, God's decreating the creation. He saves Noah before that, so here's Noah. Saved. Decreation, then recreation. Put Noah back into it. Noah's now in a new creation. Does that ring a bell about Jesus? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you're in Christ, you are a what? New creation. You've, you've literally passed over the floods from the old to the new. Just like Noah here, from the old to the new. And so what we see is Noah in a new creation. What are we expecting? We're expecting him to be like Adam, right? God created here, Adam. You're now the king of this creation. Like You're, you're under me. You're going to be in control underneath me. And you're going to expand my glory through the world, cultivate the garden to expand through the world. Okay, so we're expecting Noah to get off the ark and to do the same thing, right? Yeah, because look, that's what God says. Look at verse 5, chapter 5, verse 29. There's a prophecy when Noah is born. Verse 28 says, When the Mech lived 182 years, he fathered a son, called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. There's a prophecy when Noah's born. And the prophecy said that he's going to be a savior for the world. And the new creation comes. So we're expecting Noah to restart everything. And we're all going to be happy in the Garden of Eden again, right? Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Same thing he said to Adam. He says to Noah, God said, be fruitful, multiply, <laughs> fill the earth. Remember that in Genesis chapter 1? <coughs> That's the same thing that he told Adam. See what's happening here? God is commissioning Noah as the second Adam. This is the second creation. Here's the second Adam. Um, the image of God. Adam created in the image of God. The image of God is retained in Noah. Verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. We're looking at a second Adam. And then 920. Adam worked in a garden. Where does Noah work? In a type of garden. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. So here we have a parallel picture of Adam. He is the second Adam. And so the reader, of course, a Hebrew reader would catch up on this a lot quicker. All right, our challenge, I'm speaking to American culture people. <laughs> We're trying to bring the Hebrew culture into our minds. And now that it's here, what we should expect as readers is, all right, everything's happy again. Man has been restored to the Garden of Eden. Right? Yay, it's over. God did it. He already crushed the head of the serpent. Yes! So now there's going to be the expanding of this vineyard, this garden to the ends of the world. No. No. Our hope is quickly shattered. This, this new Adam, the second Adam, is literally everything like the other Adam. He sins just like the other Adam, too. Instead of crushing the head of the serpent like God promised in chapter 3, we just found that we just got another bruise to the heel. The serpent isn't crushed yet. We still have to wait. Notice 
that Noah's sin is exactly like Adam's. It was in a vineyard that he sinned, a garden. Adam sinned in the garden. Um, Noah's sin involved fruit. He drank from the grapes, the wine, and got drunk. Adam ate from the fruit of the tree. Noah resulted in shame and nakedness. Remember, his sons had to cover that up. Adam and Eve realized they were what after they ate the fruit? Naked. Um, Adam and Eve covered their nakedness with fig leaves. Shem and Japheth cover Noah's nakedness with a blanket. And the most compelling is that after Adam and Eve sinned, God gave the threefold curse, remember? Well, what happens after Noah sins and Ham sinned? Noah starts cursing. So a curse results after the sin as well. So this is an exact replica. Yes, sir. I thought um, his son saw that he was naked, not Noah. Yeah, yeah. I may have been dyslexic. <laughs> so, what... Okay, Brandon, you're confusing me because... Well, I'm uh, not at all. Maybe I see the picture already. God decreates the corrupted creation brings a new creation, brings a new man to become a new Adam, to restart the whole commission. God wanted the garden to spread across the globe. Man lost it, was exiled from it, but now here we go, we're starting over. He's, he's starting a garden, he's going to try to grow it over across the ends of the earth, but then he fails! What in the world? Again? So here we are in the same position. It's like Genesis 3 happened again. The fall happened again. Why? I think what we've just learned is the depth of the fall. Adam's sin did not just affect the physical creation. The curse has spread through every corner of the world and even seeped into the depths of man's heart. So what that means is a flood can't wash that away out of your heart. Oh, sure, the corruption that they were physically doing over here washed away. We don't talk about the Nephilim anymore, right? But the sin deep in the heart could not be washed away. So what we learned is God started a new creation. He started with a new Adam. He gave him a new chance, but that new chance failed. There was no return back to Eden because man can't return himself to Eden. That is the point. God has to bring us back to Eden. And that is where the whole thing fell short. God's showing that message crystal clear. We don't need new starts. It's not like if God gives another chance, put you back in the garden, we all think, oh, that is so stupid. All he had to do is not eat from that tree. I wouldn't have done that. Guess what? Noah had the second chance and showed, yes, you would have. You don't need a new start. It's not like, if only God would change my circumstances, I'd be a better person. New starts don't do it because new starts don't change the heart. The sin and the curse is deep in there. There is a spiritual problem that only God can reach in and pull out. So you don't need a new start. You need a new heart. And that's what a Christian is. That's what Jesus brings is the new heart. And that's why we need Jesus. And there is no Eden. There's no restoration to God unless Jesus gives you a new heart. Because it is impossible for man to restore himself to be with God in Eden. I'm going to try it, Brandon. No one did it for you. Don't. 
We just took communion downstairs, right? Jesus said the night in communion was instituted, the Last Supper of the disciples, he took the cup with the wine, and he said, this cup is the new covenant which is in my blood. The new covenant? Did you guys ever wonder why he said the new covenant? Like, sometimes I think we're just so, like, Bible, whatever, like, illiterate, that we just read those things, and it's just Bible terminology, I don't think it's significant. Are you kidding me? Jesus said it! <laughs> it's significant. Why the new covenant? Because Jesus was referring to this prophecy. Jeremiah 33. You will want to write this down if you're not a taper. Jeremiah 33, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. What's the new covenant? It's this, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, which includes us, we are Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Be my God, be my people. That's Eden right there. And I'm going to put my law in their heart. I'm going to change the heart. This is even clearer. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart. There it is. That's what we need. The new covenant is a new heart. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, your fallen, rebellious heart. And I will give you a heart of flesh. That's a good heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk my statutes. That's grace. Cause you to walk my statutes. You shall dwell in the land. Eden. You shall dwell on the land. Yes, I know he's referring to Israel's land, but I'm going to show you guys when we get there that Israel's land was a new Eden. He's saying, I will cause you to dwell on I will restore you to where you're meant to be when I give you that new heart. You shall dwell on the land that I give to your fathers. They shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's restoration. That's what Jesus gives, the new heart that we need. So that we don't be like Noah and just exile ourselves once again. But Jesus offers us invitation to be restored in his presence. To live Eden in the heart. To someday physically be back in Eden. Reading Revelation 21-22 will show you that. So then how does Jesus do this? What does it look like that Jesus gives you a new heart? I want to close by showing us three things in our text that we've looked at. Of what Jesus does with this new heart for you. How does he do it? First, like the flood, he destroyed our corruption on the cross so that he could recreate us in restoration. All right, we were just like the earth. We were corrupting creation. That's our heart. It's corrupting everything God's given us. It's good. Corruption, corruption, corruption. But Jesus took that and the flood happened on the cross where he hung and it was washed. The corruption's gone. And then he, he that death also gave you a new heart so that the corruption doesn't come back, but you're walking in restoration. You're back with God. You're no longer exiled, but you're restored to that communion and that fellowship. This is how Paul put it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is past, like the flood. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, or in other words, restored us to himself restoration in Jesus. Number two, 
Jesus covers our naked shame as Shem covered Noah's naked shame. All right? As fallen beings, as those rebels who want our way, we're naked. That's the biblical picture for your sin and your shame. But God, repetitively in the Bible, says that he takes his righteousness and clothes you. He makes you restored. He makes you back to an unshamed position, a secure position. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A modest, appropriate, maybe. Anyways, Isaiah 61 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt my God because he has clothed me with the garments of his salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's what Jesus does. He clothes our nakedness. Just like Shem walked in and covered Noah's nakedness. By the way, do you know where Jesus came from? Shem. Shem is the father figure of the messianic line. Jesus came from Shem's family. So Shem was acting as Jesus will act in the future of the story. That, that, I think that's cool. And finally, Jesus protects us from judgment as the ark protected Noah. Alright, God judges sin. Flood was judging the sin. But the ark saved Noah from the judgment. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 in Jesus. So what it meant for Noah to be in the ark is what it means for you and I to be in Jesus. The floodwaters beating against the ark, but Jesus is taking the hits as he did on the cross for you. He took your judgment. And you come out of the ark like Noah into a new creation. Only unlike Noah, we've been given new hearts, not just a new start. So then, let's finish here. Where, where do we find our place in God's story with this story of the flood? What does it show us? It shows us that we need help. We single-handedly exiled ourselves from God's presence in the garden, but we cannot single-handedly get back there. We need help. And that's what Jesus is. When Jesus came on the scene, that was the hope he offered. It's not just like he was some good dude. and yeah, It's just some figure we set up. Like if you put your faith in him, you're saved. What does that even mean? Jesus became our leader. We're in this wilderness of the world. And he led an exodus for us to bring us back to the garden. We're there spiritually. If you receive Christ, your new heart is flourishing with trees of life, right? You have fruit. You're alive. And then one day he's bringing Eden to this planet where we will be there ruling with him as it was meant to be. So that's why Jesus came. That's what he means. He is the help to get you back to restoration with God in Eden. So if you're frustrated tonight with life, if you feel like you have no meaning, no mission, if you're just like Noah, you're just kind of toiling around vineyards and getting drunk and always getting naked. I don't mean physically, but I mean like that's just like your life's just uncovered. It's just like a shame. It's a wreck. And you keep trying and trying and trying to do things right. I have news for you. You need a new heart, not a new start. You can't get back to God as you were designed to be on your own. Jesus has to take you there. Jesus has to pull you in. Some of you Wednesday nighters know what I'm talking about when I talk about the pilgrim's progress. Pilgrim comes up to the door of salvation and he knocks. And he's asking so open. Notice that pilgrim doesn't just come to the door and open it and walk in. Yeah, I'm saved. He had to ask. He had to knock. And he begged, please take me. I know I'm not worthy to take me. 
And then when the door opened, Christian Ninja's like hopping, yay, I made it. He had to be pulled in by the hand of Jesus. You can't do it. So if Jesus isn't literally everything in that regard, the fulfiller of your life and the one that brings you to God and restores Eden in your life right now, so you have a mission today, expanding God's presence around you so that it eventually fills the earth. Christian, that, as a church, that's our mission, and Jesus leads us in that. You will love life. I don't mean the curse part of it, because I hate that. You know, I can't wait for the future. But I don't regret life. I'm not bored with life. I love life because Jesus... It's giving me a new heart. I, I feel like I commune with God in the Garden of Eden every morning that I pray and read the Bible. Well, I don't feel like that every morning, but I know that that's there. We go through our ups and downs. But Jesus is the help that we need, the help that Noah didn't have. So cling to him as your only hope and as your true salvation. Jesus, we uh, ask you to take our hands and to lift us out of the wilderness of this world and to put us in your presence, to restore us to Eden, to restore us to being whole and at peace and in fellowship with God. Um, bring your floodwaters to destroy our corrupt nature. Flood it, drown it, Father, get rid of it. And let us be a new creation for you only without the drunkenness of Noah. Because you've given us a new heart. So let us, Lord, help us to expand this garden to the ends of the earth, that all may be included into it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.